This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Kate Camp is a writer, a poet, a critic and a bit of a legend on Saturday morning, it's fair to say. For over a decade she would regularly appear on the show chatting to Kim about old books and writers in a recurring segment called uh, Kate's Classic. Classic with a K, naturally. Uh, in this chat from 2004, the two are discussing the work of Catherine Mansfield. Hope you enjoy it. Kate Camp joins me now to address Catherine Mansfield. That's right, the lovely KM. Well, now you're staring what, at me. I'm staring, staring at me in a bald think, yeah, way. Justify I was that. just going into a reverie. Not thinking, more about Catherine Mansfield. Yeah, well, I was going into a reverie thinking about how scholars call her Catherine and they call her KM and, and um, how they tend to sort of talk down to her or, or in, in a sort of in a very affectionate way. But there's always been that thing of her being treated like a bit of a girl, you know, when she's really um, should be referred to at all times as Mansfield. Um, but I can remember when we were kids, me and my sister would always go, oh, the minute mum mentioned Catherine Mansfield, we'd always go, oh, boring old Catherine Mansfield. Mum yeah. was always rabbiting on about Catherine Mansfield. So, um, And rereading the stories, which I have read a lot of before at university, rereading them. I, mm. Now I know why she was rabbiting on. She was so right. Catherine Mansfield is a genius. Oh, a real genius. Yeah, she's brilliant. She's I know so why great. she inspired irritation there, because I've got this copy. It's quite an old copy. 1974, this edition was published. Yeah. And the fly cover, is that what it's called, the fly cover? I think so. Sounds disgusting. Mm. Anyway, the fly cover says... The fly symmetry. Catherine Mansfield has been described as the one peacock in New Zealand's literary garden. <laughs> yeah, Which, take excuse that, me, chooks. But yeah, that is certainly damning with faint praise, <laughs> the entire oeuvre of the Antipodes. It absolutely is. Mm. But I think, it, I mean, it's interesting that New Zealand only really has two authors of international standing who even register on the international radar, really, and they are Catherine Mansfield and Janet Frame. Mm. And it's interesting that both of them are famous in New Zealand, at least for their child's eye view. And I was thinking, I don't know whether that's because they're particularly good at writing from a child's point of view. Or they've or, never grown up. Yeah, or we've never grown up. And maybe our favourite stories, because of course Mansfield wrote dozens and dozens of stories about terribly grown up people, but the ones that I'm looking at today all are really focused on children, and they are the best known and most sort of best loved and revered stories in New Zealand. But maybe that's the audience, yeah. not necessarily the author. Well, I mean, Prelude, when you read Prelude, and also to some extent at the Bay, but in Prelude... All the adults except the grandmother mm. are children. They're childlike. Mm. Mm. You know, there's there's Linda Burnell, whom I want to slap half the time. <laughs> Don't you? Of, yeah, she's sort of Valium, you know, she's sort of on natural Valium. And all Stanley, the time. that, you know, you pay Stanley, good money like, oh, not to sit I next know. to a dinner party. I know, Stanley. Although I felt more affectionate about Stanley this time round. I mean, mm. I used to, what I remembered about At the Bay was Stanley, and he's such a pain in the ass. Oh. But he's actually not as bad as I remembered. He's, I, I felt a bit more sympathetic towards But Stanley. in Prelude, you know, he's, he's depicted, she's, she's very ambivalent about men. Isn't oh she? yeah. So yeah. there's Stanley, and he's picking his teeth and scratching and smug and vain and blustering. There's Beryl, yeah, and who's whinging and frustrated. I know. I know. Beryl's a very desperate character, and having just recently read Cranford and then you know reading nineteenth-century novels mm. a bit as I do, it made me think. You know, Beryl is very much that character, the woman with a limited life, and it sort of corrupts her because she can't have a life. She can't be independent because she's not married. So she's living with her sister and brother-in-law and. And she's become, she's sort of forced to be a rather petty, desperate character, really, because she can't get out and get a, you know, sensible job at the National Library or something and be perfectly happy. 
Yeah, so, no, yeah. I know that's true. I know I should feel compassion well, no, for Beryl. That's why she drives you nuts. Mm. I mean, that's the point. But it's she's sort of. Um, I mean, it's like I find Beryl. You know, when you I think I said about portrait of a lady, it's very embarrassing because you feel that you're being seen your own sort of idiotic, self-conscious ways of thinking are being revealed <laughs> to the world. But that's how I feel about Beryl. How did you Henry know? know that? I just cringe when I read mm. Beryl and and the silly things that she does, and I can feel myself blushing now. <laughs> thank goodness I've got a blushing face of radio, but um, because I, you know, I really can relate to her. But well, I, we used to do those things when we were thirteen. Casey, but we don't. How old is she? She's a grown-up yeah, person. Yeah, she is. She is. I'm desperately trying to pretend that I've never done anything <laughs> quite so silly <laughs> as since I've been a grown-up person. Mm. But the thing she does, like, she has that sense of herself. Like, she's playing the guitar and she's sort of watching herself from the outside, thinking how lovely she looks playing the guitar and how white her hand looks and, you know, looking sort of looking at herself, not in the mirror, but in the mirror of her own imagination. And what she also of, does, however, Beryl, is she looks at herself and thinks, oh, what a stupid false Yeah, and phony. then later she thinks, you know, I'm such I'm such a fake you know mm. and so yeah but I love that the, the sense of Catherine Mansfield and of course once I started thinking about the Janet Frame connection I couldn't stop and I was thinking one thing that they really do have in common is they're brilliant at observing the real details of life and giving a sense of how the unconscious urges uh, sort of swell up and overtake the conscious life and they're kind of this, um, this this fracture within the real world where all the unconscious urges and and silly sort of betrayals of your of your inner truths are coming out all the time and that they've both got that interplay between the two so that the inner life becomes the sort of distorting lens through which you're looking at the real world and and they're very exact I mean Catherine Mansfield's stories are very the detail is absolutely exact and she's looking back at New Zealand from in these stories from overseas so she's you know there's a certain amount of um, nostalgic Mm. sort of desire to itemize everything from the past and from her you know, um, I mean, nostalgia, doesn't that mean wanting to be in your home country? Yeah. And so she's got that sort of, that that sense of that. And yet at the same time, as she's got the exactness, there's also that surreal quality, which you see in frame, but you also see in Mansfield in things like when they go out into the garden and look at the aloe. Yeah. The fat swelling plant with its cruel leaves and fleshy stem. I don't know what Freud was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes an aloe is just an aloe. That's right. Aloe, exactly. aloe. My favourite bit of Catherine Mansfield, full stop, I reckon, is the beginning of At the Bay. Yeah. And her amazing. description of the early morning and the sun coming up over the sea. Right. It was just stunning. And, that and the sheepdog. Yeah. How does the go? The sheepdog ran along with his nose to the ground but carelessly, as if thinking of something else. Yeah, and then when the it's shepherd perfect. likes his pipe, it says the sheepdog looked at it, up at him in a very trusting yeah, way. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's just great. And the opening, I mean, the opening line of At the Bay is very early morning. It's really like a prose poem, that whole opening of At the Bay. There's three paragraphs, two short ones, and then a long, long third paragraph that's almost a page long. And the image is of dew and water everywhere on the land early morning. And she uses the image, she says, it's as if the sea had come up during the night and washed over the land. And you might expect to turn around and see a fish flopping on the lawn. And if you sort of take Jung's word for it, that the sea is the unconscious, then that's like a perfect sort of schema of Catherine Mansfield's Mm. work, that idea that in the dark time, the, the unconscious can well up and sort of saturate every part of your normal daily existence. Mm. Yeah, and it's also just very nostalgic. Like, um, 
you know, there's a lot going on in Mansfield, but you can also just read it as pure indulgent um, Kiwiana if you are if you are a Kiwi. The I mean, silvery, fluffy toy toy was limp uh, on his long stalks. Yeah, that's right. And then my favourite bit is when she talks about the batches, although I, the word's obviously not in use at that time because she mm. never uses it. But she says the green blinds were drawn in the bungalows of the summer colony, over the verandas, prone on the paddocks, flung over the fences. There were exhausted-looking bathing dresses and rough striped towels. Mm. Each back window seemed to have a pair of sand shoes on the sill and some lumps of rock or a bucket or a collection of power shells. The bush quivered in a haze of heat. You can just smell it. Yeah. I love it. And I love the way and power is spelt throughout P-A-W-A, which yeah. gives it this really sort of 19th century flavour. But, That's you right. know, it's just so, so evocative of, of, those, of those long summers. And she talks about how in the middle of the day the sun is so blinding, the glare off the, off the water is so blinding, you know, it's almost impossible to be at the beach. I, it's sort of undermilk woodish, isn't it? Yeah. That opening. Yeah, it is. And in fact, I've just been reading um, John Clark's um, version of A Child's Christmas, Christmas in Warrnambool. Clever. Oh, he is brilliant. He is such he an is ear. Just... For the for the uninitiated, he's done a whole book of poems written in the voice mm. of all these incredibly highfalutin poets, mm. and he's he's imitated them. He's ripped them off. He's yeah. satirised them in the most clever way. Oh, and I mean, they uh, he is so clever that the parody actually sort of gets left behind and they just become brilliant poems in their own right. Yeah. And that one is absolutely brilliant. And, and what it also does, strangely, like is it. helps you to understand the original yeah. voice better. Yeah, and how it worked. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that one does was a real real cracker for me. Anyway, back to Catherine. Back to Catherine. Back to Catherine. Oh. I'm, sure, I'm sure John Clark's got a lot of things he thinks about Catherine Mansfield. But, I mean, I... I, I really was surprised at how much I enjoyed reading the stories. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but I guess I'm used to thinking of Mansfield as being a great author, but I'm not used to thinking there, of done her that, as someone on. I really enjoy reading. Yeah. But, but I did oh. enjoy just reading them so much. I reckon, if there's only one story of Catherine Mansfield you've got time to read, it's got to be at the Bay, Yeah, Yeah, and, and especially if you're a Wellingtonian, but just, just generally mm. either. And the, the Garden Party I had read recently because I was reading um, things set in Wellington and looking for a short, Mansfield story and the garden party really is about is about class but I love the scene at the end that captures the final scene of the garden party where they've had this party and the daughter has wanted to call it off because there's been a death in the little poor workman's cottages down the road. Oh, and, don't be ridiculous and darling. And it's all about class uh. you know it's all the whole story is about class but somehow Mansfield manages to needle the middle class pretensions while still keeping you in sympathy with the individuals and maybe it's because they're children that you don't sort of get into this huge sort of blame thing of going oh isn't it awful how they're how they're so how they're so classist and then she goes down where where the carter has been killed and goes to the house and the carter's the dead man's sister-in-law is there smiling in an oily way and smiling slyly at her and she goes down with her basket full of broken meringues to give to the family it's just with her big hat on after the garden party and um after Afterwards, she leaves with her brother after she's seen seen the Carter's body, and he says, "Don't cry," he said in his warm, loving voice. "Was it awful?" "No," sobbed Laura. "It was. It was simply marvellous." But Laurie, she stopped. She looked at her brother. "Isn't life?" she stammered. "Isn't life?" But what life was, she couldn't explain. No matter. He quite understood. "Isn't it, darling?" said hmm. Laurie. And that sense of there being something ineffable that that and it's always 
often the young people who have that sense that there's something like the little lamp in the doll's house. I've, I've seen, seen the, the little, little lamp. lamp. You know, <laughs> It's just exquisite, and I find the stories incredibly moving mm. in a way that I never did when I was reading them That's when I was younger. That's my other fave. The doll's house is oh, fantastic. I've what I'd forgotten about lamp. the garden party was that the party itself takes barely a page. That's right. It's, it's all nothing to do with the garden party. Yeah. That's right. Mm. And, I mean, that's what where Mansfield really is, is that it's all happening in the preparation and the anticipation and then the memory of events in life rather than in the big events themselves. And, I mean, I think that's probably very true of your real experience of life. And she very rarely comments in a sort of George Eliotish type of way or anything. She very rarely says anything straight out about life. But when she does, they are always totally spot on. Like, I'm just looking for the part in my notes here of, of when she says when um, Linda is lying out on the lawn with her with her little baby son and she um. says, you know, that she never loved her children. No. And this is sort of the revelation that, that you know, that, that comes that – and the minute she makes the revelation, it's also revealed as sort of being yet another facade and perhaps not being true. And yeah. the fact that she sort of said it, then you think, well, maybe that isn't true after all. And a little later, I think it's Beryl says um, in her in a monologue, it is true when you are by yourself and you think about life, it is always sad. Mm. And that's a, that's a very that really captures something about those inner the inner worlds of the characters. And yet their lives aren't sad. And I don't think the overall ambiance of the stories is there's nothing sad about it but there is that sense that when the when the garden party or when the first ball or whatever whatever the action is when the action goes quiet there's that sense of melancholy I don't get that last line of prelude then she tiptoed away far too quickly and airily but we haven't got time to talk about it now thank you Kate Kate Camp talking about uh, the short stories of Catherine Mansfield it's 11 o'clock now